0: This podcast covers all things health, your body, your brain, and your well-being. Each week, we'll be joined by doctors, as well as the occasional guest, to talk about the health topics that mean the most to you.
1: Today, I'm joined by Dr. Seth Gillihan. He's a clinical psychologist who specializes in mindfulness-centered cognitive behavioral therapy. Everyone seems to be struggling with mental health concerns along with physical health concerns. But whereas we are all pretty comfortable with knowing how to access, you know, our healthcare system to get a checkup for our physical health, we're all kind of having trouble with accessing it for mental health services. Do you feel like with the new emphasis on mental health it's becoming more accessible to access these services? What are your what are you seeing?
2: There's certainly a crisis in mental health. It's really a kind of crisis on top of a crisis. I mean there was already was such a high high demand and, you know, unmet needs pre-pandemic and now that's that's just skyrocketed. Thankfully, there are some pretty exciting moves to make things more accessible. I think some of them have been pushed by the pandemic, especially telehealth. So I've been so dismayed ever since being in private practice, uh, you know, for the past decade, that the, the rules about crossing state lines are so restrictive, even though the licensing requirements across states are virtually identical so there's this, this funny situation where you know I'm in Pennsylvania uh, near Philadelphia, so very close to New Jersey, and I've often done driving exposures. So I go out driving with someone who's terribly afraid of driving you know, as a way of helping them to conquer their anxiety. And a lot of the fear involves going over big bridges, which means going across a bridge from Pennsylvania into New Jersey. And technically, when that car crosses the state line, I'm now practicing outside of my licensed state because I'm licensed in Pennsylvania and not in New Jersey. So that's a long way of saying I think we need more reasonable rules about being able to, to treat people that don't have these boundaries that stop uh, at, at the state line. And, uh, and there are some, some initiatives to do that to make our licenses more portable. So telehealth is one thing. I, I've been doing that for a long time just to reach people who, who aren't, you know, you, even in the country sometimes. You know, there's, no, there's no travel time for anyone. If Someone's not feeling well enough to go into the office, you know, face to face. You can still have an appointment. Uh, therapists can travel and still see clients.
1: That kind of really makes me think of like the boundaries we have in our own head about what constitutes an appointment and seeing someone for care. Because I think you're right with telehealth, um, it really just does open the door to being able to access services. And it doesn't have to be physically walking into an office and seeing someone in person. So I think for a lot of us, that's Maybe a mental boundary to to understanding that you can access care that way, and and perhaps it's more accessible.
2: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And that idea of shifting how we think about what therapy is, I think that's so central to to what needs to happen. Because most of the responses that I've seen to the you know, enormous demand for for mental health care is we need to train more people, we need to make care more affordable. But it all seems to be built on kind of this dinosaur of a system, which is this, you know, hour a week with a professional model. It's extremely expensive, both for people who are receiving care and to train a clinician. It's kind of like...
1: Here is a quick word from our sponsor.
2: We take
0: this few seconds off to inform you, our valued loyal listener, about the best health and fitness podcast shows. From the Nespod Studios... Enjoy the show.
2: As psychological care goes, it's kind of like building a Rolls-Royce because it takes, I mean, a lot of resources, a lot of time. And, you know, not everyone needs a Rolls-Royce. You don't need a Rolls-Royce to get to work. Uh, And so I think we really need to, to shift away from that approach because also therapists are burning out. It's emotionally... Uh, draining to do this type of work full time, and so there's there's this huge bottleneck that I, I just think we can't uh, just focus on the supply of therapists. I think that's it's it's not going to bail water out of the boat as quickly as we need to, so to speak.
1: And what do you think about people using apps um, and health coaches and other people like that to access mental health services?
2: I think. Provided that those things are based on effective approaches, I'm 100% for it. I mean, full disclosure, I uh, am the program director uh, for a mental health app called Bloom. So I I have a, a horse in this race, so to speak. But I mean, my enthusiasm for apps, I think, you know, is the reason why I'm involved in them and, and not uh, not the reverse. It's not that my involvement drives my enthusiasm because... I've wanted to and have been looking for ways to democratize you know, mental health care for a while, and and you know what I've focused on, as you know, um, you know for a number of years now is on you know bringing effective interventions directly to people, because uh, again, it, it's more affordable. Um, not everyone needs to see a therapist, although there's certainly a place for that, and uh, can be you know essential for someone who needs it. But, you know, if we're really going to democratize care, I I think some of it is going to have to involve self-care. So, you know, figuring out what types of things are effective and being able to do them for myself, either through books or mental health apps. I think family-centered care can be really important, especially for parents uh, working with kids. Um, And then, you know, other approaches that I'm really excited about that I'm just learning about really, but, but more... You know, community health, like thinking not just, you know, one-to-one types of interventions, but how do we structure our communities? How do we build neighborhoods in ways that promote mental health? So I'm thinking of things like, you know, making it easy to get into green space, which we know, you know, from many studies has positive effects on our health. And how can we make it easy to exercise, you know, to get out into, into the fresh air? Or even something that may not seem directly related to mental health, but being able to access fresh food you know, where lots of neighborhoods don't have access to grocery stores that have fresh produce, which, you know, more and more studies are showing that a, a, a healthful diet is a really important part of our mental health. So I think we really have to kind of break the mold of this is what therapy is and think more broadly about how we can.
1: Right. No. Sorry to interrupt, but I was just going to say to broaden our approach to what constitutes treatment. So as a lifestyle medicine person, what you're saying totally resonates with me because it's sort of like treatment is not necessarily just one-on-one in the office. It's all the stuff that we're doing in life outside of the office. So that's access to telehealth and apps, but also just access to the things we're doing in day-to-day life is probably more important of a therapy or treatment than that time you're spending with someone in an office.
2: Yes. Yes. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah, I think there are 168 hours in a week. So even, you know, an hour-long appointment every week still leaves 167 hours uh, that you're, you know, kind of on your own. So really, if we can meet people where they are, so I think that does include apps, can include, you know, YouTube videos, again, provided that the information we're getting is reliable and, and useful And, you know, even social media. I know there's a lot of concern about the effects of social media on our health and our mental health, but I think there can be really positive effects when it's used the right way.
1: Thank you for bringing that up. So that was going to be my next question, is social media and how, you know, how do you see the benefits of people being able to access that um, really during their day-to-day lives um, for mental health information. What are, what are your thoughts about social media and mental health, pros and cons? And we'll, we'll dig into this more, but I, I'm, let's start with the, the benefits.
2: I mean, one big one, I think, is just awareness. So much of, I mean, no matter what the condition is that a person's dealing with, so much of the struggle has to do with that feeling of, I'm the only one. I'm alone with this. I'm the only one who's suffering like this. Other people aren't dealing with this kind of problem. And when you see so many people who are through now you know, social media bringing us you know, stories and and images of people all, all over the world, and you know even you know well-known people, celebrities we admire, then it's uh, you know it's a lot harder to have that that feeling of of being alone. And I think it's done a lot to lower stigma. There's much more of a a sense of acceptance. There's a recent study that came out, I guess it's been a couple of years now, but showing that about, I think it's five out of six people in their lifetime will experience a diagnosable mental health condition. These are not abnormal conditions. They're unusual states for any of us to find ourselves in at a given point in time, but so is a cold. You know, it's, it's not the image of health, but it's not uh, anything that's somehow outside the, the normal and even expected bounds of human experience. So the acceptance part has been huge. And then that sense of community that we find that not only am I not, am I not alone, but I can connect with other people. I can find out what they've done that's been helpful. Harness these types of technologies in a way that is, is life-giving.
1: I love your analogy about the cold and how it's just something that sometimes is within the realm of of normal human experience. And then sometimes you're sicker than that and you do need more help. So I, I love that analogy. I wanted to kind of, what you're saying makes me think about something else, which is that, you know, when we think about social media, we often think about influencers. And in the health and well-being space, Traditionally, healthcare professionals have been the influencers. We've been the ones to kind of talk to people in our communities, in our offices to help change behavior. And now you have, you know, individuals who may potentially be able to take on the mantle of a a health condition and really use their own personal lived experience as their expertise to influence other people's health behaviors. What are some of your concerns about that? What would you like? Because I can totally see what you mean with that being able to be something positive where you're destigmatizing a condition and you have many people sort of listening in and seeing you and sort of seeing you normalize some of living with these conditions. What, What makes you worry, though, about this much influence given to one individual or a few individuals?
2: yeah that's it's, it's such an important question. Part of the issue, I think, goes back to the the role of social media and you know when is it a positive and, and when is it a negative? And part of the downside of seeing someone's story about mental health is to then assume that their journey should be my journey. And then if they're describing, you know, well, this is something I did and this is how I got better, then we might try to map that onto ourselves and then feel like well, what's wrong with me that it worked for them but you know i must be really defective or or something or or beyond help when in fact it might just be that you know our response to treatments tends to be idiosyncratic and so maybe i need something different from what worked for them or at times a person might even be promoting something that's not helpful for most people or it could even be harmful to some people so an example uh, that comes to mind is you know, I treat a lot of obsessive compulsive disorder, and there's a particular approach that's needed to really treat that effectively, and it involves you know, not uh, giving in to doing the compulsive behaviors, and uh, you know confronting the things that trigger my anxiety and urge to do you know, these these rituals w- without actually engaging in the rituals. So. Uh, if a person is is uh, encouraging other people with OCD, you know, here's how to avoid being triggered. Here's how to you know, make sure that what you have is OCD and and not something else, so that you get so that that kind of reassurance that actually feeds into OCD. Then it's unfortunately uh, actually perpetuating the, the person's condition if they're trying to follow the that influencer's advice. So again, I mean, it's there, there's so much potential with you know, with, with these technologies. Um, but but it really depends on the quality of the content that we're getting. Something that we're seeing a lot of, I think, and I've stepped into this somewhat myself, is kind of a, a blending of those two influencers you were describing, one being the, the professional and one being the person who has the lived experience. Because there's so many professionals who have gone through you know, their own types of mental health struggles. And... I think for a lot of people, it really resonates to understand like, oh, okay, so this, you know, this person is, you know, a specialist in treating anxiety, let's say, and they've gone through, you know, major panic attacks. And, you know, here are effective ways that they found to deal with those. I think it, it lends both, I think, more credibility to what the person is suggesting because, you know, the person has actually experienced the condition. They're not, you know, talking from an ivory tower.
0: Go get a load of that happiness because happiness is healthy as we know it. Join us every week as we continue to provide you the best of health and fitness wellness updates from around the globe. Enjoy the show.
2: And also, it, again, I think reduces stigma because it's not like, oh, there are these mentally ill patients and then there are well people and it's, you know, the, the benevolent practitioners are helping the sick people. But really, we're all kind of participating in the same types of struggles to a greater or lesser extent. And we all depend on doing the same types of things to stay well.
1: Yeah, that's such a great point. I think that, you know, so much of care depends on connection and feeling connected to the person that is helping to guide you. Through your journey, um, so I think that being able to share some of those experiences as a person with expertise um, in health uh, really helps build that connection and maybe helps the the person, the patient, the client, whatever you want to call them, um, with their with their journey to to getting better on the spectrum, as you say.
2: Yeah, I think the community part is is such a crucial point. I mean, the, there are many many studies showing that in psychotherapy, you know, the the type of treatment that a person gets, you know, matters more or less depending on the condition. But what's what's true across all conditions is that the quality of the alliance that we have with the person we're seeing is a really important predictor of how treatment goes, not just how much we like the treatment, but how much benefit we get out of it. So yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think that's the challenge with a lot of these non-traditional approaches is like, let's say with a, a book or an app, how do we build in that sense of connection? Make it you know feel like that I'm right there with the person because I'm in fact not at that moment with them as they're reading. One thing we do tend to find is that on average, the most effective treatment tends to be you know, in person, you know, with uh, a live human being, Uh, not that other types of approaches aren't uh, really effective and and, uh, can be very useful. We need to make treatment approaches as sort of interpersonally uh, rich as possible.
1: And this kind of, this whole conversation is just making me think again about social media as that connector, but then all of these risks that we are now learning about the strong link between using social heavy social media use and higher risks for mental health conditions like depression, anxiety, loneliness. So much so that we're seeing, you know, a spike in childhood anxiety, which is not just linked to social media use, but also, you know, just pressures in society and other traumas and school pressures. Now we have recommendations that all children between age eight and eighteen should be screened for anxiety. How do we sort of connect those dots? What should we be doing for our young kids when it comes to social media and other things that may be sort of triggering or predisposing them to anxiety?
2: Yeah, no, there are real dangers for, for all of us, and in particular for for young people. It's it's been said so many times, but it's so easy to forget. That you know what we see in social media is always presented through a filter, and you know going back to the point about people sharing their mental health struggles and journeys, it's true there as well, you know, even for someone who is intending and you know trying to be as as open and transparent as possible, there's still a camera, there's still a filter, and so um, we we never know exactly what another person's experience is, and each of us. You know in our in our real lives, in our face-to-face interactions, we're presenting a certain type of you know polished persona to other people. We let them see as much as we want them to see. If we're doing that in with social media and we're you know creating images of ourselves or videos, all that just amplifies that ability to filter what we allow through. So that can you know, present this false impression that everyone else has their stuff together, their lives are so much richer than mine. That needs to be in our awareness. We need to, you know, tell our kids that again and again until they're sick of hearing it from their parents. But what you're seeing is is not a person's whole life. And you know yourself, all of yourself from the inside out, whereas you only see these selected parts of other people. So, and we know that these effects—the effects on self-esteem—are especially dangerous for people who already have or tend toward low self-esteem. So, if someone goes online and and let's say posts something, and they're hoping that that they're going to get a bunch of likes, and that's going to make them feel good about themselves, a lot of times it doesn't. It doesn't lead to the type of satisfaction they're hoping for. And even if it helps. Even if temporarily we get that little, ah, that's nice, all these people you know, liked or retweeted or shared my, my post, then th- that's building a type of dependence on that sort of feedback. It's, it makes me think of a rock star, you know, someone who goes out and, and gets all this adulation and they feel, you know, they feel like a rock star after a performance. But then what happens when, when the crowd isn't there? What happens when it's just them and their loved ones? What happens when they're trying to live in a relationship where the other person doesn't see them as a rock star or just a human being? On the other hand, if we have a clear sense of purpose yeah, just in our lives in general, and you know we're, we're going online because we want to say hi to our friends, or we want to share something that we care about, not because we need congratulations or uh, admiration of other people, then you know, that, that can be a, a much more uh, rewarding way of using social media. There's a fascinating study showing that for people who have a clear sense of purpose in their lives, when they post things online and they get a bunch of likes, they don't get a big boost on average in their self-esteem, probably because they already feel okay. They're not going online to try to get a sense of validation. So really, you know, there's... A real need for awareness, a self awareness of why am I going on here? Why am I opening TikTok or Instagram or whatever? If I'm trying to fill a hole in my sense of self worth, then more likely than not, following through on that urge is just going to dig a deeper hole.
1: That makes so much sense. So it's almost like each the intention each time you open that app, it's so important to focus on that intention and stick to it as you start kind of getting sucked into the vortex.
2: Yes, I love that. I love that about intention, yeah, and and maintaining that intention. Because it is easy to get a bit mesmerized online. I I have to be honest, I've had to – I'm going to disclose some of my uh, personal limitations – there, there are certain people whose profiles, when I see them online, I feel so much professional jealousy that I've not yet been able to master. You know, and reframe as oh, good for them, and be inspired, and and I mean, I want the best for people, but I but it creates this sense of like like oh, this little twist, like I should be doing more like that, and and why am I not you know, getting as much recognition as they are, and you know, really unhealthy uh, types of of reactions. And it took me a while to realize, like, I just need to not, you know, see that person's post right now. Like, I want to. I need to continue developing, you know, as an individual, so that, you know, I can hopefully someday have a different reaction. But, but that's not who I am right now. And, and so, uh, but it's it's easy to just kind of go along with that for a while and not realize, like, wow, I'm just kind of tormenting myself.
1: But, well, since we're <laughs> sharing, <laughs> Seth. <laughs> Um, I will share this. I am of an age where it wasn't so much a part of everyday life growing up. So for me, that my defense mechanism is once that started happening to me or I just started feeling like personally or professionally sort of like, wow, this is actually making me feel worse. I have to just take complete breaks from it for a long you know for long periods of time um where I'm now only getting alerts if it's someone's birthday or it, it's almost exactly like what you said like what is my intention for it which is just to keep in touch with some friends um you know share birthday messages or it, whatever my personal sort of goals are for it that's the alert that I've set so those are the alerts I get I'll go on I'll you know, send my message and then I'll pop right off. <laughs> that's sort of how <laughs> I've been able to maintain my my uh, sense of self with it. Yeah,
2: I love that now. Thanks for sharing that. Just get in, get what you need and get out.
1: <laughs> I, you know, and it is a struggle. I, um, with my children, I have younger children. I have one who is now a tween and she is, that's her biggest thing. I want a phone. She's not really into social media or the, the apps yet, but she just is in my mind, I'm like, okay, phone means apps, means social media, means, oh my gosh, you're going to spiral. So I'm trying to figure out my and my husband's personal sort of ability to manage that because we don't want to just say, no, you can't have access to it at all because we understand that that's socially not acceptable for her. So,
2: (laughs) Yeah, I'm in the same boat as you and Aja. Our older two are 14 and 11 and, uh, yeah, definitely thinking about how to negotiate these things. In a way, the easiest course seems to just be no. But like you said, that's not realistic. And also, ultimately, what we want is for our, our kids to be you know, young people who can regulate themselves. And so, so yeah, needing some some type of introduction that allows for responsible use. I mean, it's a little bit like alcohol. Like, we don't say with alcohol, like, well, they're going to drink eventually, so we should let them, you know, Get used to it in middle school. so.
1: Well, I look forward to your advice on this topic. um, (laughs) And I will be following you for for how you proceed professionally and personally on this particular topic.
2: Yeah, I look forward to seeing what unfolds as well.
1: (laughs) Well, thank you so, so much for your time. This has been really such a great discussion. Any final thoughts you want to share with me or anything I missed? I mean
2: the the one thing I would add is just you know what I was I was getting at this earlier but if you if you feel like like you're suffering with something that no one else is I, I can almost guarantee there are many people who are in the same boat and there's probably a, a, an effective way through this so I, I wish you well and encourage you to to reach out and find others who uh, who are going through similar things and and uh, perhaps a professional who can help. Great advice.
1: Thank you so much, Seth.
2: Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
1: This will conclude the episode. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please leave a comment and subscribe. Thank you. This will conclude the episode. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please leave a comment and subscribe. Thank you.